0: The now on the Innovation Show, Director of the Insight Center for Data Analytics with University College Cork, and Deputy for European Artificial Intelligence Association, and current SFI Researcher of the Year, Professor Barry O'Sullivan, joins us. So Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have My you. Pleasure. I suppose a way to start this conversation is just how, why is AI where it is today? I suppose. Look, AI is probably one of one of the most important technologies that we hear about today, um, and
1: there's a lot of, I suppose, a lot of hype around it, um, which is good and bad, um, but a tremendous opportunity. I suppose AI grew out of, you know, it was coined as a term in the nineteen fifties, um, where you know people sat around, people like Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy, try to figure out, well, you know, how could we make computers think like a human being um and it was slow progress and you know you often hear about ai winters which are basically these sort of periods where um ai was the um was one of the hot technologies and then for some reason didn't become one of the hot technologies either because you know funding ran ran out nobody could do research in it or because it sort of oversold itself and couldn't deliver um and i suppose these days it's certainly on the up and up, and I think it's on the up and up for a few reasons. Um, one is, you know, we're gathering massive amounts of data these days. You know, everybody, everything you do, you're leaving some sort of a, a data crumb behind you, whether you're using social media or you're phoning somebody or you're sending an email or you're browsing the web or, you know, wearing some smart sensors or something. So there's massive amounts of data that being gathered all the time. And you often hear people talking about the fact that in the last two years, uh, we've created more data than um, than human beings created uh, since the dawn of time, up to about two years ago, right? So, which is which is amazing, um, and you know, probably probably true. Um, but I suppose the other thing that's happened is you know, certain kind of technical advances have occurred. So, you know, we all have very powerful computers at our disposal, but you know, we also um have seen phenomenally powerful computers built so there's lots and lots of data lots of computing power and i suppose also there have just been some really smart advances in the field of artificial intelligence that when you put them all together this sort of perfect soup has um allowed us to really excel you know so um you know where you know 20 years ago um there were big wins like. you know, Deep Blue beating Kasparov at chess. You know, we're now talking about self-driving cars and all that sort of stuff, which is phenomenal um, progress in such a short period of time.
0: Yeah, and with that huge amount of data, we have to be careful what crumbs we leave. It's almost like you have to clear your personal browser history because <laughs> you've been tracked yeah, at every point.
1: Yeah, well, privacy is very, well, obviously, privacy is becoming far more difficult now because. Um, um, If you just, you know, so forgetting social media and like what we're leaving online, um, just imagine how many data points you'd need to uniquely identify somebody. So you know, think about you know the people living on your street or living in your village or whatever. Um, And if someone, if you knew, say, people's date of birth, and some guy come along and said, "Well, you know, I'm talking about a man, and he was born on the fourth of April, 1957," then those two things alone probably uniquely identify that person, you know. So just with very, very few data points, or you might say, if that doesn't uniquely identify someone, then there's very, very few people in the locality that would have that particular gender born on that particular date. But if somebody told you something else like, well, you know, and this person with blue eyes, or the person that um, drives the yellow car or, you know, drives to the nearest town twice a week, then, you know, you, very quickly, can you need to identify people? So the kind of we don't need very many crumbs to, to, for people to be no longer anonymous, and that's that's the challenge. Um, and I suppose you know for this reason, there's a lot of talk these days around privacy, around security, around um, uh, data protection. So what people can um, do with your data. So it's a it's a very very hot topic. Um, And and quite a difficult one. There was was an experiment done in the U.S. about two years ago. I think the privacy lab at Harvard did it, and they took two publicly available data sets. I think one was an anonymized data set for health conditions, where anonymized means that the person's name uh, and address was removed, but their gender, date of birth, and their, I think, postcode was left in the data. And then they also could... Access the register of electors, which is publicly available in most states in the U.S. So you you get um, so you get name, address, and so on, and um, whether they can vote or not. But if you do, if you put those two things together, because the date of birth and the gender are almost unique to identify people. Then um, I think something like eighty-five percent of people in the state of Washington were uniquely identified just this data alone, which is publicly available, which is so not not only could he identify who you were, but because it was a health record, they could identify what conditions you were suffering from, which is kind of which is kind of embarrassing and scary. It kind of
0: debunks that whole thing, Barry, about people being so privacy concerned. I
1: suppose one has to make a distinction between how easy it is to break somebody's privacy, you know, just in terms of public data. Um, and whether someone should be allowed to. So, for example, for some countries like Germany, for example, where you know, even if it, so, even though it is easy to identify somebody, if the if the person's intention is that they be that their privacy be respected, then it's often consi- there are situations where it's considered illegal just to try and identify them, even though the data is available. The act of sort of um, uh, identifying the persons from DNA from uh, from de-identified data is um, is actually uh, is a crime. So, so, the whole the whole question of data protection. You know, there's the European GDPR coming at us in a couple. You know, next year, um, which has got all sorts of rules and regulations about. Well, you know, if there's data about you, then someone can only use that for something for which you've given informed consent for, um, and these sorts of things. So, it's really becoming um, such a challenge. Um, and of course, you know, people talk about giving informed consent for data, but lots of times when you sign. Uh, sign up to a new app on your phone or sign up to a new service, you often um, give that consent maybe unwittingly, you know? <laughs> so um, yeah. uh, you, you, you might end up going through a couple of screens and say, well, do you know that with your data we could do the following? Say, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You
0: know, give, yeah. Just, give, just, <laughs> just get me there.
1: Just give me the service, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, I find that really interesting because that that's what we see all the time. People are, are like, oh, I'm really concerned about my privacy and they just go accept the terms. The, I, I know very few people who read the terms and conditions. Yeah, there was some silly example
1: at some conference or other. It, it, it could, well, it might be urban myth, but it could, it could very well be true. Um, where you know people had to sign up for the free Wi-Fi by just um, you know going to the thing called free Wi-Fi, and then uh, when they selected it on their phone or their computer, a screen was chucked up saying, you know, uh, click, click, I agree with terms and conditions to. Access free Wi-Fi, so people just click the terms and conditions and connect it to the Wi-Fi. And you know, at the end of the conference, uh, you know, the terms and conditions were presented. You know, uh, you agree to give us, you know, to, that your firstborn child will wash my car for the, forevermore <laughs> and all the sort of stuff. You know, just just silly things. You know, yeah. and uh, it was very readable. It was, you know, sort ten, of ten stupid things that people had to were promising to do, and nobody read it. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah so we're, we're we're concerned about it, but we don't we, we don't we don't treat it with we're not even we're not responsible you know we
0: don't act responsibly yeah do you, know, do you know one thing that i found really interesting barry was i saw i don't know if you've seen the movie ex machina yet um, oh yes i have a,
1: seen it yes.
0: fantastic movie and yeah I, what i what i found one of the most interesting lines i thought was when the the creator of this ai who had who was a search engine guru let's yep. call him that and he he said he's asked how do you make the ai so intelligent and so empathetic and has emotional intelligence everything and he says i plugged it in, i plugged it into the search engines because the search engine is almost like a pulse for the nation and that that for me was a real moment of uh, an aha moment because it's not just about you know facebook and and social media it actually goes beyond to what are people actually looking for and what are they actually talking about and it's you know you talked before about data that you, people give in a survey versus behavioral data and that's mm-hmm. very much behavioral data yeah so like the, there have
1: been lots of examples of that kind of thing you know there was a google flu trend service at one point and what it used to do was uh sort of map and predict where flu was um currently active and so it would do that basically by, well, you know, if you're sitting at home saying, well, you know, I feel kind of crap and you know um, I'm sneezing and all this sort of stuff, and say, so, you know, uh, how, wh- how do I treat the flu? Then the fact that lots of people were, were searching for that at a particular location gave an indication that well, flu is in that location. Um, and of course, you could, you know, if you if you sort of looked at that on a map, you could get a sense of how flu was travelling. You know, <laughs> so um, um, no, that, that that service has been discontinued. But there are lots of these things to sort of predict what people are doing and saying. Uh, based on their um, based on search queries, um, and there are lots of services. Like uh, there's, there's a very nice um, there's a very nice uh, visualization called Pulse of the Nation, in fact. And um, from social media activity, I think from Twitter activity, in fact, it looks at um, what the mood of people are at different different parts of, uni- of the United States, and it plots this over time. And so you get this, these nice visualizations that sort of show you that, you know, um, what time, what part, what, you know, what days of the week do people feel, feel the most positive or what time of day do people feel most positive and which, you know, who are the happier people, people on the West Coast and people on the East Coast. And this is all done from, I suppose, uh, gauging sentiment or gauging mood from, um, just from Twitter activity, so the you know the like while well, there's massive uncertainty in this kind of data, the the because of its sheer volume, it can be enough to give you a to give you a signal, which is very very interesting. Lots of AI systems, you know, that we use today are basically sort of sitting on top of these very rich data sources and doing quite interesting things with them. You know, recommending a movie or um, maybe serving up an advertisement, which is you know um, people may or may not like. Um, I generally don't like it, but um, it's a big revenue business, obviously. And so knowing what you like and what you're what you might have a predisposition to um, respond positively to is um, uh, is very, very possible and, dare I say, easy um, with large, quantity, large quantities of this kind of data.
0: Yeah, and th- that leads leads us to another kind of uh, quandary, I suppose, is, is that because there's so much historical data, and, and I mentioned before it kind of clear in a personal browser, but if you yeah. think about... the the amount of data available in the world and historical data and how concurrently the world's patterns and trends have changed, where, for example, the the balance of male and female has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Gender, for example, or even working conditions or what type of people work in what types of roles. The machine learning has to start at a point of A, reading the data available through a platform, or B, actually taking the input from a human. And if it's taking that that kind of data, it can't start at zero, and it can't learn from today at, at ground zero.
1: Yeah, well, well, I suppose, you know, we often talk about um, ground truths in, in AI and in data mining and machine learning. So the, the ground truth is, you know, what is the... What is the real pattern, you know? So, what is the real thing? Um, so, imagine you knew exactly what someone was going to consume as a as a movie, for example. You, you you would then build a system that would try to predict that value. But you knew what the ground truth was. So, I suppose the point you're making is that we don't know what the ground truth is because you know, people people are changing. Um, there's possibly bias in how the data was originally gathered. So maybe maybe the data was. Um, was information about uh, people who went to certain kinds of schools or um, got a certain level of education. And so that's, that's, you know, that's, definition, bias, because um, it it doesn't represent the entire population. And So the, like the effect, I suppose, what, what's the, the more serious issue is, well, how do you deal with it in the context of AI systems? You know, you, you could be starting with a data set that's biased because it's, it's old and incomplete or something. And then you're dealing with bias, you're dealing with data that you're sort of accessing in real time. And so where does that data come from? Is, that, is this coming from people who tweet a lot or people who tend to blog a lot or people who tend to Um, you know provide lots of data in other ways so that you know i regard that as a sort of a class of bias type problem so how do you how do you deal with these things and ai is a real challenge
0: you know you mentioned twitter for example and People on Twitter tend to follow like-minded people on Twitter, for example. I know Clay Shirky talks about this ant mill where the ants just follow each other into this death mill, a death spiral, until they all just collapse <laughs> from exhaustion. Yeah, I think we, t-
1: we, t- we tend to call those sort of filter bubbles in, um, in, in my area. So, you know, you tend to surround yourself with information. So, inf- information that you receive is based on... Um, the, a sort of a personalized uh, system that presents you data that you tend to like you know like if you're if you're a social media platform owner then what you want to do is obviously get people to engage with your platform and if you give them information that they will respond positively to or, um, or well that they will respond to then obviously you know people are using your thing and so they get to see your advertisements your advertising stuff more often and so um if you get people to look at, if they enjoy looking consuming certain types of data, then you know you should, you know, there's a motivation to give them that kind of data, and so all of a sudden their world becomes totally defined by that that data that um, that they will like, and so this is the classic filter bubble, you know. So if you're a take the U.S. election, if you're someone who likes the message of Donald Trump, then you'll tend to respond positively to that and engage with it, whereas if you're you know someone who the, you know, like the Hillary message, then, you know, you might not, you would not have engaged with the Donald Trump stuff. So, you, you know, the Hillary person will get to see more and more data that's, that's Hillary-esque and the person who's responding positively to the Donald Trump data will get more data that's Donald Trump-based and so they'll end up living in almost parallel worlds, you know? So that's, um, that, that is a problem.
0: I did this recently where I actually cleared my browser history again to kind of go, okay, well, <laughs> let's start from zero. And then the problem is, of course, when you're signed into something, You have a history from being signed in, and and it's like you say, it's like you go down a a rabbit hole that brings you a certain way because that's the profile you fit, or that's the ad you might have clicked on with your fat finger by mistake on your phone. You're kind of going, I didn't mean to click on that ad, and then you go down this other bubble, and you kind of go, I didn't want to go there.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, there's a um, you know, it's very hard to get back to zero, as you say. You know, Um, like you were talking about a web browser. and you know, clearing the the search history—that's only really one aspect of it. You know, there are things called cookies as well, of course, that sort of follow you around the place. Um, and also, there's just um, you might be logged into the machine, so it knows who you are, it knows where you are, it knows what time of day it is. So it's very, very hard to start at an absolute sort of uh, completely um, from a complete from a completely clean slate. Yes. Actually, there's a very funny example of this recently. A colleague of mine, uh, as UCC see, mentioned this. Uh, he got one of these sort of pull-along shopping trolleys because um, he tends to walk around the city and he um, he does a lot of shopping, you know, and, uh, you know, so you, know, you remember that. You know, th- th- these are things that your sort of granny used to pull around with to get the get the messages in the love <laughs> shop or something. So the uh, so and he said that after he bought this, the number of advertisements he was getting for walking sticks and other sorts of things went up to the roof. You know, so <laughs> you know as a consequence, sort of buying this product, which was a which I suppose from the from the whatever recommender system was serving up advertisements to him. Um, this was a strong indicator that. Uh, that's you know he was uh, he was a person who would need these sort of walking aids and everything. But of course he wasn't. He was a perfectly fit guy, you know. But it's, you know, it's
0: kind of funny. And, and Barry, so I was thinking about Tay. We talked about Tay and interaction bias because this is kind of where we're going, where where the algorithm will will change. But when it, when you go to something like machine learning or chatbots, etc., there's a, there's a certain bias that takes place there also.
1: Oh yeah, like I suppose yeah. So just speaking generally about AI systems, I often call. AI systems, um, well, those those that are heavily reliant on data, um, as bias in, bias out, algorithms, you know, because they're only as good, or they're only as unbiased um, as the data that you provide them. Now, of course, bias isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? So the, um, but it's it's a property of of the data that's that's worth thinking about. You know, where the data came from, and um, and I suppose more importantly, thinking about the results. Based on the data that you that you gave the system, you know. So um, the um, and it's important that that we understand the relationship with these sorts of things, right? Because um, uh, ultimately, it gives you a, a sense of, you know, if an AI system is serving you a result, then um, one needs to understand well um, how bias impacted that uh, in some way. So, yeah, there's lots of different kinds of bias, you know. So after, you know, so um, you know, you mentioned this talk I gave in Cork a few weeks ago. So I was talking about things like um, Sort of data biases, which is so a data bias is basically, you know, does bias into data to begin with. So the example I gave there was, um, you know, if you're searching for cute babies in Google, and if you type in cute ba- babies, you will tend to get, um, you know, lots and lots of white Western babies, um, and that's because uh, the alg- there's nothing wrong with the with the Google search engine in, in some respect, but it's giving you what it thinks what, what what's signaled by the data to some extent, right? So um, this is, you know, we tend to have lots more of that kind of baby on the internet. So, uh, you know, people must be looking for this kind of baby. <coughs>
0: but
1: there's yes. other things like, um, so you mentioned Tay, you know, the interaction bias. So this is a, so Tay was a chatbot that learned by interacting with people online. So, and it interacted with people online through Twitter. So, um, so it was a Twitter bot, you know, it was a chatbot for Twitter. And so um, I think Microsoft had to, were the producers of that had to take it offline um, within a day because it became uh, a racist, sexist, offensive chatbot because it was um, it was kind of learning from interactions between people who were online. Unfortunately, are often much more aggressive and unpleasant than they would be through social interaction, for example. So there was, a, there, was a, there was a bias in the data because of where the data was gathered, but there was also this interaction bias because people people online were interacting with each other in a quite a negative way, which is which is kind of hilarious, you know. So. Um, that uh, AI systems that learn by observing our behavior as human beings can become really, really unpleasant human beings, you know, yeah. so that's uh, it's, it's something that's amazing. And, like, it's a word of caution, like, when building AI systems, because this, this is the, exactly the kind of thing you have to be very, very careful about. If we want to build a system that behaves, you know, like a an intelligent, reasonable human being, then, unfortunately, having it interact with people online isn't the right way to do it,
0: yeah. But it raises a really interesting one because I, I told you I've written a blog on this where, mm. you know, the, the the shadow of the leader in a way or, or the the teacher role becomes so important. It's so important anyway for children. And and you talked about Tay there, for example, picking up mm. around, just around the interactions around it. It just shows you the importance of, you know, the, you know, birds of a feather flocking together. What type of they are? What type of people they are? What type of values they have? But but when it comes to the person. Teaching the machine, that person's role is really important. If it, if if that if that machine is going to have an important decision-making role itself, the the input from that person has to be key. And often it's a certain type of person that works in you know that industry that that's training the machine.
1: Yeah, well, you know, if human beings are teaching computers how to behave, you know, through you know where the learning has been done through some sort of AI system, then there's absolutely no reason why we should be training them any differently than how we train children Uh, and in some sense the sensory capabilities of a of a very young child are are far far more sophisticated than they are of a computer (laughs) obviously so you know if we're um, um, so with a with a stupid old computer we have to be very very careful you know Um, because uh, you know it can't You know, it doesn't have the sensing capabilities to sort of see that, you know, we might not be feeling very well today. And that example, we should maybe ignore that example because, you know, daddy was a little cranky today. So, um, uh, you know, human children can figure that out. Computers can't. So um, we should be probably far more careful in terms of how we select what it is that we teach an AI system with, then, um, then we would be choosing examples with a child, you know. Like yes. computers can't understand humor, even young children can, you know. Like the ability to to accept information and understand how it should be processed is quite a sophisticated capability that we have as human beings.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and um, so, you know, we, like the human being as a teacher, data, data is the, are the examples that we teach these systems with and because we're starting with something that, at the end of the day, is just a, a very precisely defined algorithm. Um, then we need to be very careful which examples we we present it. And this is actually a very old idea in artificial intelligence, by the way. You know, people like Pat Winston back in the seventies were working on um, on how to, from a machine learning point of view, how to select good examples that um, would help an AI system generalize properly. So you know, in the early in the early seventies, at MIT, um, Blocks World was a very common Domain um, for for I suppose uh, performing AI experiments. So the so blocks world is basically exactly that. It's just it's a world in which you have you have square blocks, you've got rectangular blocks, you've got uh, triangles, and you're trying to train um, an AI system certain concepts like how to build an arch, and so. You know the, the you know the basic ideas that you so show some examples of things that are that you know this is an arch, this is an arch, that isn't an arch over there. That's so, and the AI system would need to figure out well how to generalize correctly from those examples. And so, if you think about how you would teach kids, you would kind of a very good teacher would carefully choose which examples to present next, so that the so that the 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 pupil the child would would generalize properly. Um, and if they overgeneralize, then you could give an example that would sort of rule out the thing that they thought was okay. Um, and so the role of teachers in AI is a very, very old idea, going way back to the 70s. You know. So, yeah. um, um But unfortunately, in in modern AI, you know, so the AI which is which I suppose is really just a subset of the field, but you know what we, everyday in everyday life, what we what we tend to call artificial intelligence is you know lots of data, lots of compute, and a and a and a learning algorithm called deep learning. You know that's what most people think of these days as AI. But but the, the role of data here is really really key, um, and the algorithm is gen- is a thing that generalizes, um, and because you know compute power is just so. Um, it's because computers are so powerful today, that um, you know we can, um, in a very in, in a very short period of time, we can um, we can generalize very very quickly from the data. And um, this is a process that needs to be sort of thought of very carefully. So I think your point about you know the the role of a good teacher is a is a, is a very smart one. I think it's a it's a very good insight and one that isn't really taken. It's one that people in modern um, AI, particularly when it's been deployed rather than the research community, but when it's been used in the field, I think people don't give it the don't give that the thought that they should, you know. Um, and ultimately, it's a sort of you know, it's a, it's also related to bias.
0: Yeah, yeah. And do, do you know it, it kind of got me thinking about one thing is you mentioned about the child understanding humor and th- those mm. little kind of the little subtle elements that even even from country to country, from nationalities, the nationalities are often yeah. missed. And do you yeah. think AI will ever learn that?
1: Um, well, you know, like, uh, never say never. I think, no, I think it will. I think th- this, um, I suppose it depends what, what what kind of AI we're talking about. You know, if yeah. we're talking about, like, just take chatbots, for example. So conversational stuff. I think th- um, there's a lot of work being done in conversational AI. So these are chatbots. So these automated systems that you get to chat with through text or even through speech online um you know to help you buy things to help you um you know get some service you know uh buy a ticket for something or whatever um and these are often culturally aware and they're, you know so they they know that certain phrases are considered polite and certain other phrases are not um and so th- there are lots of companies that are studying this kind of th- th- these sort of sensitivities so i think yeah you know yes it's already happening you know so particularly in chatbot chatbots conversational systems yeah. they do need to be they do need to uh, converse in a way that's considered polite, and also even more sophisticated. There's a there, there are there are chatbots that that interact with you almost at the le- that are culturally aware, um, but also are um, aware of the informality with which you like to be interacted with. So, so for someone who tends to be quite informal, then um, I know of some companies that are producing um, chatbot AI that. Um, Will interact with you. That will learn to interact with you very, very quickly in terms of the, the you know, respond to you in the same level of informality. Wow. Um So that's that, that's very, very interesting, you know. So the, um, but a lot of the time, this is again, this is just, uh, you know, these are, this can be, this can be done through data. You know, you 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 see examples of how people tend to speak in their emails to each other. Uh, that gives you a sense of how informal or formal they are. Uh, maybe how they respond to um, interactions from a chatbot. You know, the, the, you know how how can you um, identify sort of a positive reaction from a negative reaction? Um, so this kind of online learning approach is something that's really where where the cutting edge is in terms of this type of technology.
0: Yeah, the thing it, it kind of raises is people think they're safe if they're a creative industry or they're they're doing non-rote task jobs, but. Like we've seen recently that the AI can actually learn its own way as well. If you give it a general set of instructions at the start, it can actually win in way. So I'm referring to Kasparov getting beaten by Big Blue, mm, but then yeah, recently yeah. there was a win in a computer game where they played a sequence that nobody had ever thought of playing before. Yeah, so I suppose, yeah, so, so you're touching off two... To, I suppose,
1: first of all, just on the gameplay So, you know, your question was about game playing, but also, I, I suppose, to some extent, about automation and, you know, being... Um, being as good as human beings at at something, so um, I suppose just spe- specifically, you know, so, so this whole area of AI systems being uh, learning to be as skilled as human beings is something that's um, getting a lot of uh, attention at the moment. So, yeah, so there was Deep Blue back in the nineties. AlphaGo is the system you're referring to. Good um, man. Thanks, man. About how to. Um, about playing Go um, and the sequence that was played in one of the games. That conventional wisdom in the, amongst human beings is that you just don't play that kind of move. You know that that's a bad move to play. But the AlphaGo system did play that game because it is well, from its fast experience, absolute. You know, more it, it played more games of Go than anybody than any human being has ever played. <laughs> so it saw lots of situations that maybe human beings hadn't witnessed. Um, so you know, this this kind of um, so technology, so AI that that performs as well as humans is something that's is interesting from a game playing point of view, but it's also um, something we should take seriously in terms of automation and the impact of work. Um, there's a lot of concern around, for example, whether AI will replace certain kinds of jobs or you know what impact is going to have on certain types of jobs. Um, and what we as a society then want to do about well, how do we respond to that? Do we do we want to legislate in some way? Do we want to regulate? Do we want to simply create uh, a society that's responsive to those sorts of things? So, you know, take for example, you know, um, uh, driving. So driving is is an automatable task. Um, so truck driving is the most common occupation in the United States, but truck driving can be automated. You know, we it is possible to build AI systems that do drive trucks automatically so the question then becomes well, just because we can do that, so technologically, the question is well, should we? <laughs> you know, so should we automate the truck drivers, um, or should we? You know, we like to drive our cars, but you know, should we? Should we develop those technologies that allow us to automate the process of driving? You know, these are as much ethical and societal questions as they are technological ones. And you know, if we do automate some people's sort of job, and there are people being automated jobs, we see this all the time. You know, so um, like just think about. How you interact with your bank? You know, you don't tend to interact with human beings anymore. You tend to you tend to interact with them through a machine. You know, so um, or you go to an airport. Um, there are airports where you you know the whole process of you know checking your boarding card and checking your passport it's all done by autom- by automated systems. You don't you, on, unless there's some problem. You don't get to talk to a human being. So you know there are jobs being replaced. Um, and so the question then is, well, you know, what are we going to do with these people who are, whose jobs are replaced? Um, so, you know, many would say that, that technology will create as many jobs as it replaces. And, you know, that, that might be true. Um, um, but of course, you know, if you're a truck driver, for example, in the example I gave earlier, um, then what, what jobs do we, what other jobs do we give you? You know, so... Um, there's only a certain proportion of uh, truck drivers will want to be computer programmers, um, and for all sorts of reasons, they might not be willing or able to become uh, computer programmers. So, like, what, what are they going to do instead? You know, they're going to become taxi drivers, but you know, taxis could be replaced.
0: Yeah, that's a and huge. So this yeah. whole
1: issue is going to be very interesting and I think you know like there, there are big questions around this societally as well um, like I've been looking a lot at the I thing called universal basic income um, yeah. which is something you often hear about in the context of automation and AI which is you know um if people so rather than relying on work as the primary source of income for, for people, shouldn't we, shouldn't we as a society be providing everybody with a basic income that's sufficient to allow them to live, um, and so they're future-proofed against automation um, and AI, you know, replacing their, you know, replacing work, um, and you know, this has other advantages, um, and I think it's it's quite compelling. I think I think we will have to, you know, in Ireland and elsewhere, we will have to really start thinking about what you know. Do we want to create a universal basic income and I would be a strong advocate that we do? Um, be, uh, because of the challenges that AI systems present for us, you know,
0: because yeah, the big one there Barry I, I see is technology and You know general wellness in the world more people yeah. die from obesity than they do from starvation now and then people are living longer Yeah, generally and it's gonna only get increased that and then there's mass urbanization so you have these kind of forces that are all concurrently happening. And then the, wor- the, the one you mentioned is the, the jobs being replaced and there are no jobs for a lot <laughs> of those people. So, you know, if people are That'll older, t- they usually might drive a taxi. For example, if you know, a nixer on the way home from dropping your grandson yeah, yeah, yeah. off to school mm-hmm. or to soccer, you might be an Uber driver on the way back. Now you can't because all cars are driverless. So what do you do?
1: These are the big sort of societal challenges of, uh, that AI and automation uh, sort of pose to us, and I think we have to, like, on top of all the ones you just mentioned, the other thing is, if there is mass automation of, say, manufacturing jobs, which there already is to some extent, but not not universally. Like, there are still lots of manufacturing jobs occupied by human beings in China, and that's often because the cost of human work is at a level that it just isn't worthwhile automated. You tend to find that wealthier economies like Germany and um, uh, and Korea tend to have high levels of automation because the the cost of automating work is actually is more economically beneficial than 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 not doing so. And then the question is, well, what, what do you do with those with those, with those other people? So if one buys into a, a scenario where there are job losses as a consequence of automation, then it has to be true that wealth has been accumulated by a very small number of people. That those massive wealth been being generated. But, but because people are not working, because they're automated by some robot or some system or whatever, or their job doesn't exist for all sorts of reasons, then how do they get their income? And I think this is where initiatives like universal basic income really become interesting now, some might sort of criticize and say, well, holy, that holy cow, that sounds that sounds awfully like communism, you know, but but it isn't like, there's there's ways in which these sorts of systems can be designed that are win-wins for society for society as a whole. Um, there are plenty of examples of where universal basic incomes are are currently in use. You know Alaska has a has a sort of societal dividend. Finland is running an experiment. Utrecht, I believe, is doing this. Uh, Switzerland are going to take a vote on whether they're going to do such a thing. You know, so uh, people are taking this all seriously. So I think it's um, it's worth thinking about these, these sort of things societally because, you know, these technologies are moving at a pace and we need to, we need to sort of sit back as a, as a community and think about, well, where do we want things to go? There's a colleague of mine at, um, uh, at, at Impact Trade Union, Niall Shanahan, and he and I have talked about these things um, at great length. And uh, I think the, um, the impact of technology on society and, you know, the, just the ordinary worker is something that we really do need to have uh, a serious conversation about.
0: Brilliant. Well, Barry, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. We could talk all night, and I think I'd love to do a part two, uh, maybe in a few months. It'd be great. Absolutely. I'd really be delighted. I'd really be delighted. Thank you very much. Well, Professor Barry O'Sullivan, Director of the Insight Center for Data Analytics in University College Cork, Deputy President for the European Artificial Intelligence Association, and current SFI Researcher of the Year, Barry O'Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.